So last week, I preached to you a centuries-old sermon by that great preacher, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This week, I thought about just bringing another one from Edwards because it's October, it's almost Halloween, and Jonathan Edwards had a great sermon about zombies. Not kidding. It was nothing but zombies. He described people walking around, those who were dead in their sins and trespasses, didn't know they were dead, but they were dead, and they were walking around like the living dead. He didn't use the word zombies, but that doesn't mean there aren't zombies in the sermon. In fact, it doesn't mean anything. What is the most popular zombie media at the moment, maybe of all time? The Walking Dead. The entire run of the show, they never, ever, ever say the word zombie. But there's zombies all over the place in every episode. Or maybe that's not your bag, but think about, for example, The Godfather. Classic movie, The Godfather, which is about the mafia. Never once is the word mafia uttered in the entire movie. Or Cosa Nostra. They talk about the, the crime families in other terms, but they never use the word mafia, and yet, of course, it is a mafia movie, or maybe you're a little more literary, uh, Valerie, and, and, you, and you haven't seen any of these things. And you, you think about the, uh, the Scarlet Letter, that great, that great uh, novel by Nathaniel Hawthorne. We all read it in high school, I'm sure. Uh, the story is, of course, Hester Prynne is caught in adultery, living in a very Puritan society, which is portrayed as very mean, and... When she's caught in her adultery, they make a uh, scarlet letter, which is a capital red A, and they make her put it on her garment to kind of shame her all the time, which, by the way, um, yeah, I know you're not supposed to do. But if I were to ask those of you who've read that book, apart from you obviously seeing where I'm going, how many times you think the word adultery is used in it, people would probably say, I don't know, a dozen, 50, 100. And the fact is that the word adultery is never used in the book, The Scarlet Letter. And in fact, it is completely avoided almost entirely. Even the topic is only used where it needed to be. It's all about the, the fallout. And yet still, without adultery, there's no story. The adultery, is, it's always hanging there in every scene. It's almost a character in the story. And we see, I think, something very similar in the book of Esther, which we are going to begin looking at this week. Now, there are many misconceptions that people have about this book of Esther. Even those who have read it multiple times and think they know it, I've heard people say things like, oh yeah, that's the book where Mordecai enters his niece Esther into a beauty contest and she becomes a queen because she wins that beauty contest. None of that is right. I also have heard people say when they're calling people to pray, let's be like the people in Esther, right? I'm like Esther standing up saying, go out and pray and don't stop praying. Pray, 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 pray the entire time this is happening. Esther never actually tells anyone to pray. We're never told anyone does. She simply tells them to fast. We might assume that they also prayed, but it seems that the text is almost going out of its way in a similar way to the Godfather or the Scarlet Letter, not to tell us that they have. And there are those who recognize that, and there's a third misconception about the book of Esther, that it is a book in which we do not have reference to God. We don't find God. In fact, God is kind of almost not a character. Like when you're watching a sitcom and one week they give a main character the week off. Maybe they're off shooting a movie or something and that character is, 
off doing a boat ride or on their honeymoon, and they're conspicuously absent. That's how many people view the book of Esther. Well, God's in most of this stuff, but now he's missing from this one. Still a good book, though. There's lots of good things in it. And it's true that there are no prophecies, no prayers. Uh, There's no mention of Jerusalem or the temple, even though the temple has just been rebuilt in Jerusalem. It's barely, it's new. Like, you'd think that would be on their minds. There's deliverance, but with no conspicuous miracles. No parting of the sea, no seven plagues, none of it. It seems to be a rather, quote-unquote, secular book. And even look at how it begins. You read the beginnings of books of the Bible, and they often draw you into a spiritual kind of sense. Genesis begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Joshua begins with, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. And it goes on to tell us how he he tells him, Be strong and, and courageous, for I am with thee. The book of Ruth, which is often paired with Esther for, I don't know why, because they're both named after ladies, I guess. But it begins with, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. When you hear these kind of sentences, it it feels like you're walking into church almost, right? When you begin reading Esther, it's like walking into a drunken party. That's, that's being thrown by and for a heathen king for his own self-aggrandizement because that's what is described. And it's described in super great detail. It's not like, unfortunately, there's thing happened. No, we have all the opulence, all of this stuff, this debauchery even kind of described in great detail. Now, people have tried to address these things and fix them. There are later editions to the book of Esther, written in Greek, so it's clear what fits and what doesn't from the beginning. But even if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek Bible that was popular during uh, Jesus' ministry, for example, you'll find editions here that make it more kind of holy. You have a, a, a prologue in which Mordecai has a dream from God, a premonition, a prophecy about all the stuff that is going to happen. And you say, oh, I see, God is part of this. Then we have Esther praying at length, two beautiful, theologically rich pleas to God to save her people. They're not original, though, and they actually kind of screw up the structure of the book, if you include them. Others have looked in weirder ways. I don't know if you remember the Bible code in the 90s when everyone was using supercomputers to like search for through. Well, some people, they didn't get into supercomputers, but they went through the text of Esther and tried to find ways in which God's name, uh, yod Hey vav Hey in Hebrew, Yahweh or Jehovah is, is hidden in the text. And it's been suggested that there's two times when a Jew says the name of God via an acrostic kind of forwards, and two times that a Gentile says the name of God backwards. And of course, you can also find all sorts of other fun things if you look in that way. But I don't think we need to go to these great extremes, because just like zombies are all over the walking dead, the mafia is all over the Godfather, and adultery is ever-present in the Scarlet Letter. So God is all over this book of Esther. If you just gave it a cursory reading, apart from understanding the context, that it's part of the story of Israel and God's plans for her, it might seem like the plot is just driven forward by the wicked plans of fallen men. And in some ways, that is true. 
most of the inciting incidents, most of the things pushing us forward in the plot are guys being awful and making awful plans. There's also an awful lot of coincidences which seem to come at just the right time. Now, for those who understand that God is at work in the pages of Scripture, just as he's at work in our world today, we recognize these coincidences as divinely designed opportunities. And we see him working even where his name is not mentioned here. Even through, quote, secular people and events like beauty contests, harems, eunuchs, assassins, rager parties like we have here, even a king's insomnia forward God's agenda for his people in the book of Esther. God is not at work just from without when he sends lightning bolts or parts seas, but within these things, within everything. And I think that is part of what is so encouraging about the book of Esther. Mark Dever, one of my favorite preachers who's uh, yet alive, has called Esther one long narrative illustration of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, of course, is uh, that God works all things together for the good, those who love Him. That it's a long illustration of that fact. In fact, it, it seems to me, as I read and study this, that the absence of God's name almost makes His presence that much clearer. And yet, we've done something that I think is unconscionable with this book, maybe because God's not in it, quote-unquote, or maybe simply because it is convenient, we've, we've boiled it down to a morality play. There are heroes, there are villains. Now don't get me wrong, Esther has a great villain. Everything about him, except the fact that his name is Haman, is designed to make him like a really awful, awful baddie. Then you can't wait for him to get his comeuppance, and when it comes, it's delicious. But that is not the point of the book, that I should be the hero so that I can defeat the villain. And in fact, I don't think we can blame the quote-unquote absence of God here because we do the same thing with, with Joshua, with Ruth, with David, even with Samson, who's just a real despicable guy. We turn them into the heroes and we say we have to emulate them and be like them, and that's the point of the Bible. We may as well write God out of every verse of those books as well, if that's how we are going to treat them. Even the most popular manifestation of this which if you say Esther, almost everyone will go, oh yes, for such a time as this. God wants me to do something great for such a time as this. Even that is not meant to say that you are the focal point. You need to be the hero, the heroine. This, I think, is one of the biggest misconceptions, the final and most egregious of the misconceptions about the book of Esther, that it's about your one big moment and identifying it and grabbing hold of it. It's all about me being like Mordecai or like Esther, celebrated and honored, brave and faithful and heroic and so incredibly good-looking it actually shapes world history. Right? You read Esther, you go, why don't we all just do that? Everything would be fine. We have to look deeper, not via the Bible code for hidden messages. Rather, we see in this text allusions to God's activity, appeals for His intervention, we see in this what's called the divine passive, which is a way that people talk about God, especially in Hebraic writings, without using the divine name of God a whole bunch of times in a row by saying, this is done, 
this has happened when it's clear that the one who's doing it and causing it to happen is God, even that perhaps you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Who's coming into the kingdom? She is, but it's inferred here, it's implied, and we infer that it's God who's brought all of this about. How else could there be some grand design or plan at play? So there are divine passives throughout, and there are many coincidences, and where a a non-believer might see dumb luck, we see the hand of God in these events. And yes, These are events. Make no mistake about the genre of the book of Esther. It is a historical narrative. That's how it presents itself anyway, despite what so many gallons and gallons of ink have tried to do with it. It begins in Hebrew with the word vaihi, which means, and it came to pass, I think in the King James, or you might just translate it, and this is what happened. It's describing in very unadorned introduction, these are events that took place. We don't know who wrote it. We know why, but we don't know who. Possible authors who have been suggested frequently are Mordecai himself. In chapter 9, we see him writing some things down and sending them out to people. Perhaps others have suggested Ezra has done it because, you know, he had an in with the court in Persia and he was a scribe after all and he's already got some experience writing books of the Bible. Others have suggested maybe Esther herself wrote it. It's probably none of the above. As we read this book, we find that it's someone looking back after this feast, this festival of Purim has been established for generations. They're looking back at its origin. And so it's somebody who's maybe in the court of the Persian king, perhaps a Jewish court reporter. We know it's someone who's very familiar with Persian life in the palace. They get every detail right with with what we find about life in the palace in other sources. They know so many Persian words. There are 60 Persian words in the book of Esther. This may be why I have not preached on it yet. Because of all the hundreds of stories in the Old Testament, this is easily in my top three, but it's a nightmare to deal with the original language. You put Ruth and Esther together, ha! Within a year, Hebrew students in seminary are writing textual commentaries on the Hebrew of Ruth. You start opening up Esther, and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a degree in Akkadian or Persian or any of it. And yet, you don't need to read it in Hebrew to see the beauty of the structure and what a, what a perfect story it is. It is a perfect chiasm, symmetrical in its construction, and it is so masterfully written. I mean, I know it's the Bible, so it's all good, but this is so good, so tightly composed, so satisfying, so balanced in its tension and it sucks you in. I remember about 10 years ago, a former iteration of our, our men's Bible study, we used to meet at John's Country Burger. Remember that place? And uh, while we were eating our olive burgers and stuff, we would just open the Bible and we would read through it and we would discuss it. We had some, some questions uh, that we would uh, answer and we, we usually would go about an hour and then we would all be done eating. We'd say, all right, see you next week or see you on Sunday and we'd, we'd leave. When we were in Esther, I don't know if you remember this, Sean, Uh, There was five of us there, and I think we stayed about two hours and 15 minutes because we were like, let's just read one more section. Let's just read one more section. Let's just read one more, because it sucked us in with the intrigue, and we knew how it ended, but just enjoying the story is worth the read. The purpose of it, which I just alluded to a moment ago, it isn't revealed until the very end, but it is to provide the origin story of this festival called Purim. 
Even, by the way, Purim is an Akkadian word, yoinked out of Akkadian, and then they say, well, we just take the Hebrew masculine plural ending and pop it on there. There, it's a Hebrew word. Very difficult stuff, but it's a word that means lot or fate. It's lots, like, like dice. It's plural, it means lots, and so it's a festival of lots. And it is a huge, raucous celebration in Israel and amongst the Jews to this day. Uh, we read about it as early as 2 Maccabees after this, uh, where it's called Mordecai's Day. Uh, Jesus himself seems to celebrate Purim in John chapter 5, so it becomes very much established, and this is how it came about. We also, I think, should briefly discuss the place that Esther has in the sort of timeline of the Old Testament. I don't know if you think about these things as you're reading the Bible. I hope you do. You should. Remember, what are the three rules of Bible study? Anybody? Context, context, context. A very important part of context is this historic, redemptive historical context. Where are we? And it's so easy when you're reading the Bible, I think, to keep straight. You know, Adam and Eve, okay, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then we have Samuel, we have Judges, and we got, we got David, and we got. And, and then you start to like lose the plot sometimes as it fragments a little later in the Old Testament. And this is maybe right about that point where a lot of people sort of lose track. So let's talk about it for just a minute. What happens, of course, is after David comes his son Solomon. After Solomon, we see Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is usually called Israel, the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And the northern kingdom is far more wicked, its tendencies, its kings. Uh, There's a lot of idolatry going on. There's a lot of warnings from prophets. Uh, That's where Jezebel is queen. That's where we see a lot of Uh, Stuff that that brings God's wrath down upon uh, the the land. And so after a number of warnings that I will actually bring an end to your northern kingdom and a lot of ignoring of those warnings, God makes good on it. The Assyrians come in. They take about half the people. They pull them away. Then they just grab as many people as they took from all around their empire and bring them in. They swirl them all together. They intermarry. Goodbye, uh, religious, ethnic national identity. That's why these are called the the lost tribes of Israel. The the southern kingdom does a bit better, but not for more than a couple hundred years. Not even about 150 years after that, we start to see then rumblings of, you too need to repent. God will. Now, God's not going to allow them to be erased, of course. He's made promises that that the throne of David will will endure, that, that his his blessings on his people will continue, but he says, I'm I'm going to have to discipline you by allowing you to be taken into captivity, into exile. And so that happens. In 586, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in with his army. He takes a bunch of people captive amongst them, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you know these names. And then he comes in again and he just destroys Jerusalem and just levels the temple. So he comes in like a, a, a hammer, and after he's done that, he takes a bunch more people captive, all the richest, most useful in his eyes people, all the most talented, all the most industrious. He brings them back to Babylon. That's where we get a lot of stories, like in the beginning of uh, Daniel, etc. Then, after 70 years, we would expect there to be just a sudden restoration. In between these two things, something changes, though. You have Babylon overtaken by Persia. Babylon was a great big empire. 
Persia was a bigger, better empire. You remember the story in Daniel 5. Belshazzar, he's having a kind of a Hasuerus uh, party. And uh, he and his nobles, they're just drinking and drinking and, and uh, enjoying being rich and powerful. And they decide to, to break out the holy vessels from the temple that they had stolen when they, when they ransacked and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. They're drinking their, their wine and enjoying their debauchery there, and then they see the handwriting on the wall. Literally, this is where the phrase comes from. A hand comes and writes this ominous promise, and da Daniel's brought in to interpret it. And before the night is over, this guy's no longer king. Daniel 5.30, we read, That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. This kind of brings us up to speed then. You know that the story of Ezra is that Cyrus the Great, a Persian king, uh, let a contingent return from Persia to Israel, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. God told him to do that. We read about that in the first half of Ezra. In the second half of Ezra, you read about kind of uh, purifying the people morally. And in between those two halves is where this book takes place. So halfway between the beginning and end of Ezra, kind of. And of course, all this time also in Israel proper, Zechariah and Haggai are prophesying and, and calling the people to task. It's almost as if after spending so much time on those who had returned to the promised land, the Holy Spirit, who is the co-author of all this, says, let's just put a pin in that and pop back over and see what's going on back in Persia in the capital. And it's, it's important to check out because a large number of Israelites have been left behind in Persia. Now, on one hand, they're doing fine. They, in fact, many of them seem to have gotten rather rich. Uh, they're not slaves by any stretch like they were in Egypt, but at the same time, they're cut off from the land, from the temple, and Jewish religious life, and meanwhile, trouble is very much brewing for all of them. This is the story of Esther. Persia, of course, was the greatest empire the world had ever known. It had been ruled by Cyrus the Great, on whom I have a bit of a historical man crush, now ruled by the far inferior Ahasuerus, also known by his Greek name Xerxes. You remember him from the movie 300, which most of us watched as children in Sunday school? <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't ever do that. No. But he's the son and successor of, of King Darius. Uh, and from history in general, our picture of Xerxes... How about that, Katie? You could have just said Xerxes. Our picture of Xerxes is of a man who tries to become a god by amassing more and more land and people and power and insane amount of wealth. And here in Esther, not only is that kind of reinforced, but we see that he's really looking for affirmation from the rulers he conquers, from his harem, even from his own subjects. Through constant flexing and outlandish, gaudy, ostentatious displays of power and wealth. This guy's royalty will be recognized the way he wants it recognized. And we see later in the book of Esther that if someone fails to properly recognize it, he will kill them for the slightest of slights. He has none of the honor and grace of Cyrus, none of the administrative genius of Darius. But at this point in his life, in his reign, as we join it already in progress in its third year, he's doing all right. In verse 2, we read that he's sitting on his royal throne. And that's not just telling us where he happens to be. 
it's a, a description of his, the, the state of his, his reign at the moment of his kingdom. He's secure. He's sitting pretty in the citadel of Susa. Susa is one of four capitals of Persia. You've got to have four capitals. That's how big they are. One for each season. Not kidding. This, this one, the citadel of Susa, is the winter palace. And he spends more than one season there in this case because he's in such a good mood. He's in a great mood here in the third year of his reign because he's finally kind of quashed the revolts in Babylon and then Egypt and re-solidified and, 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 and re-established himself after the death of his father, Darius. Now he's got his eye on Greece. He's going to go and try and conquer Greece, which his father failed to conquer. And he's probably starting to plan, and probably part of the reason he has this big party is for networking and building support for all of that. But before he moves on, he is going to stop to celebrate. Now, if you know anything about history, you know what will happen when he does attack Greece, right? You know about the Battle of Thermopylae, how that becomes this kind of rallying cry, how ultimately he very much uh, has to come back home having not succeeded. He should have known. Why would you mess with the Spartans? They are 7-0 and right now. But he tries it. But at the moment, though, he thinks, I'm in a good position. Let's party. And he is really going to party. This is a royal banquet par excellence. And royal banquets, big parties, play decisive roles in the book of Esther. Notice whenever they pop up. Okay? They're here at the beginning. They're at the climax. They're then later in kind of the epilogue. And elsewhere, even. Here we see kind of a triple party happening. There's a six-month-long, 180 days, they had lunar years, so this is half of a year, time when, when princes, members of the aristocracy, high-ranking military officials all come in, and they all enjoy a big party in the palace. The whole city, the whole kingdom, undoubtedly didn't like grind to a halt for half a year and, and put a sign up that said, sorry, back in six months, off partying. He's probably rotating in people. He's probably bringing in some of the, the rulers and, and nobility from other places he has conquered to give them a taste of his wealth and greatness, kind of reaffirm the sense that he is not to be messed with, that he has everything under control. And when he gets done with that six-month-long party, he says, you know what would be great? A week-long party. And so he has another party. This one is for all the citizens of the city. This is the one that's described in greatest detail. You have never been to a party like this. Beyonce and, and Bill Gates have never been to a party like this. Not only because it's six months long, but when you read the description, it is, it's bonkers in its opulence. Verse 6 has three different words for fine linens. Again, nightmare to try to translate. You open this up, you, I don't even know one Hebrew word for fine linens. But it certainly conveys the absolute lavishness of this palace and this party. He goes on to describe gardens, gold couches, lots of purple, which was very expensive, of course, to acquire draped everywhere. He's got the three M's. If you're familiar with event planning, you know the three M's that you need for any successful party. Marble, mosaics, and mother of pearl. He's got them all covered. His goblets are all of gold for everyone, and it tells us no two are the same. They're all a unique design. That is a flex if ever I've heard of one. As far as decadence and conspicuous consumption, this is like Downton Abbey and the mid-80s had a baby and named it this party. And this guy is trying hard. What is he trying to do? Verse 4 tells us exactly 
Exactly why he is throwing these parties for political and military elites and ultimately for everyone in the city. Quote, so he could show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. He's the center of the universe. Why wouldn't he celebrate him? Of course, we see here, too, a little taste of how royal decrees are at the center of Persian Medo-Persian life, right? The idea that the decree, you say, yeah, of course, the decree of a king is going to be sovereign and, and all-pervasive, but it almost takes on a life of its own, and it becomes unchangeable, immutable. It's thought to be the, the will of the gods, and it can't be changed. In fact, you, you read that phrase several times in the Old Testament, the laws of the Medes and Persians which cannot be changed. And, and, and in some cases, it, it comes back and really kind of bites the king. Remember uh, when the, the enemies of Daniel trick King Darius, uh, Darius the Mede, into uh, signing a royal edict that says, basically, da Daniel's going to jail for, for praying. And if you do this, if you break this, you're going to be thrown into a pit of lions and devoured and killed. And he realizes that this is going to come back and, and result in Daniel's death. And he weeps and he's sad and he's horrified. But even though he's king, he can't just say, never mind, undo. He can't do it. And here we see that he's even decreeing drinking. Think about that. The normal custom was that you drank whatever was in front of you. He says, there's no compulsion. You can drink as much or as little as you want. It's that kind of party. We're legislating liquids. Every detail of life is controlled and regulated by this sovereign. This becomes a problem for Jews in Persia. In Daniel, again, for example, when the sovereign says everyone has to worship a gold statue of me, that becomes a problem. And it's going to be a problem here as well. But back to the party. Everything is more, bigger, better. Actually, that's redundant. More is better. Bigger is better, at least in King Ahasuerus' eyes. This is basically the Bible version of lifestyles of the rich and famous, as you read all these details. And I know that's a dated reference, but I don't know the new shows that do this. Is MTV Cribs still a thing? No? Maybe? I don't know. At any rate, this is not new and it's not gone away. We still continue to be obsessed with and, and mesmerized by wealth and glitz and glamour just as people were back then. We call people stars, right? You're a star. Let's go and, and, and ride around in a bus and look at the homes of stars. Calling people heavenly bodies that shine in the sky that tended to be worshipped by the ancients. And I think that's fitting. We have this sense that, that some are more important than others based on these outward things. Compare that, or contrast it, if you will, with, with Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Obviously, Xerxes has fallen into the former category. He is self-worship embodied. The first commandment has been shredded up and thrown on the floor to absorb any spills in the palace. But this is a great setup for a great fall. We know this from Ecclesiastes 2 and elsewhere. The story of the rich fool as well that Jesus told, who multiplied and multiplied his riches and built more barns and silos and said, I'm just going to keep on getting richer and richer and I will live the life of a king. And then God comes to him and says, you fool. Your very life will be demanded of you tonight. And what good are all your riches? 
This is not the way that he thinks things are going to go, that he's going to be bigger and bigger and better. He's going to take Greece, and then he'll feel better, and then he's going to go, and he's going to extend it even further. I already rule from India to Ethiopia, but i got to go bigger, 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 and at some point, I'll find happiness. In reality, having more means wanting more. Someone once asked John D. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little more. And actors and singers and, and rappers today keep on acquiring more wealth and power and fame and, and, you know, a beautiful wife and ridiculously opulent palace. And we all look at them and say, wow, they've really got it. That's amazing. And, and they flaunt it when they have it, just as Ahasuerus flaunts what he has, but it's all empty. And in this very next section we look at next week, we're going to see how it backfires on him. There's a great reversal And we see his insane, almost infinite, from a human point of view, opulence come crashing down in a moment because he is humiliated. And then we contrast that with a simple peasant girl slash orphan and a simple servant. Ironically, the name Esther, her Persian name, actually means star. And God is going to take this insignificant person And he is going to do something enormous with her. And and of course, the book of Esther is known for being full of dramatic irony and great reversals. When you get to the end of it, everything happens in such an amazingly fitting way. And this is the same dynamic that we see at play in the story of Jesus. And of course, when you read a book, you say, "I, I don't even know if I can find God in this. You have to ask, can I find Jesus there? We're supposed to read the scriptures and find Jesus in all of scripture. Oh, we're going to find Jesus there. Absolutely. Beginning with this very notion of great reversals. From the annunciation of uh, the angel to the Virgin Mary on, this is a theme. The humble lifted up, the proud humbled. Remember the Magnificat, God who raises up the humble and who topples kings and emperors. From Genesis 3 on, the Bible is the story of God bringing redemption through a messianic line And this fits into that messianic story. At every turn, Satan is trying to snuff out that line in advance. From Cain killing Abel to Herod's edict to put to death the the children in Bethlehem, every male child under two years old, he never stops trying to cut our salvation off at the pass. And this book is sort of a case study in how God is at work to save us despite all that. Despite ourselves. Contrast This guy, Ahasuerus, and by the way, I think that there's a reason that his name is actually said four times here in one small, and that's to mess with Katie. No, but also because he just keeps on hammering. This guy is in love with Ahasuerus. That's the theme of the party. What's the theme going to be? Ahasuerus. Absolutely. Contrast that with Jesus. Look at at Mark 10, starting with verse 42. Jesus called to them, his disciples, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." That's a great reversal. His kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is infinitely bigger than Ahasuerus's. 
His glory infinitely greater. His, his royal feast will make this party in Susa, this little soiree, look like a sad 3 a.m. rushed meal at Waffle House, just stuffing your gob with tasteless food when the floor is sticky and everyone around you is like depressed and staring at their phones. Okay, and yet this, this banquet that we read about in the book of Revelation this banquet that was uh, kind of used as a teaching point in the text that we read for the gospel text, this banquet is not just for the elites, the great people, the movers and shakers, those who can do something for him. God is not like us that he can be served with human hands. No, this is the story where he says, go out into the highways and byways and gather in anybody who will come. Anyone at all. I'm talking lepers. I'm talking drunks. I'm talking prostitutes. I'm talking tax collectors. Bring them in. What about Gentiles? Bring them in. He cares for all. And they feel in this moment where they're in Persia, they're not part of the return to Jerusalem. They're not part of restored temple life. They're dealing with things that they never thought that their people would have to deal with. They feel like God is absent. And yet, God is all over this book. We see it in retrospect. That is so often how this works. In the midst of dark times, when tragedy has come or darkness is looming, we can wonder, is God ever going to enter into this story? Is he ever going to be a character in this, in this particular play? Have you ever experienced that? You look around and you, this is the chapter where there, God's not around. And yet, when all seems lost, we see here God moving in in completely unexpected ways through completely unexpected means. And it's a bit saccharine, and sometimes people confuse it with the Bible itself, but it reminds me of that Footprints poem, in which case, the guy looks back and says, every time I was facing a difficult part of life, there's only one set of footprints, God. And, and he says, those are the times I carried you. I picked you up and carried you. But he didn't know he was being carried in the moment. That's the weird thing. And perhaps they didn't know they were being carried until they were right in the middle of the climax. What are we going to do? Is all lost? No. He is working through unexpected means and through people who are not flannel graph, two-dimensional cutouts, heroes and heroines, but rather really flawed, very passive, rather assimilated citizens of a pagan Gentile empire. And yet, as God begins to stir, they begin to awaken. The beginning, we're going to see next week, Queen Vashti, she's got more character than Esther. Okay? She's not going to just go along with this injustice. Esther's like, I guess I just roll with it. Until the moment comes when she awakens, with the, the stirring of the Spirit. And when you look at the whole book as a whole, you get to the end and it says, basically... I've told you this story to explain why we celebrate Purim. And you go, well, I don't even celebrate Purim. What does this do for me? And then you go, wait a minute, which means lots? And you think back on the story, you try and figure out what was the role that lots played? Yes, there's a moment where Haman casts lots to decide on what day the Jews should be destroyed. But that's such a minor detail. I think perhaps the reason it's called Purim is because in this world where Haman thought this is basically dog-eat-dog. Dog. The rich and powerful will get more rich and more powerful. The strong crush the weak, and it's all blind chance, a casting of the lot. He has to discover what we read about in the book of Proverbs, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. 
God is yet in control, even when it looks like he is not. And here God's people, by their sin and rebellion, have been separated from the promised land and seemingly from the promise itself. And even after the 70 years that they were supposed to be exiled have passed, many of the people are still in exile. Maybe that's why there is no mention of God here. They feel like he is not there, but God remains faithful even when his people have been faithless. And so for us, this book is not an attempt to stir up some kind of emotional, ah, for such a time as this, you can do something great and be celebrated like Esther and honored like Mordecai. You can be the hero in the midst of darkness, but rather that we can be part of what God is doing wherever and whenever we find ourselves, which is often not where and when we would want to find ourselves. I'm probably not alone in that I have often said I was born at the wrong time, mostly because I tend to idealize and romanticize previous time periods that had their own problems. But it's not true. I was born at the right time. We read in Acts 17, in the midst of uh, uh, this great speech, this great sermon, and hath, uh, God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Where you live, when you live, God has predetermined that. He put each of us where and when we are and even those exiles, it was true of them, and even we exiles, it is true of us. The New Testament makes it clear we are in this place on this earth exiles because the world system does not honor God and does not believe in the gospel and does not, does not follow him. We are here as a sort of minority religious group. Now, for some people, it's more obvious than others. Those who are in China, those who are in somewhere like Saudi Arabia, they're, being, they're punished for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's obvious they are exiles in a very real way. But even those of us who live here with a measure of freedom are culturally exiles. A covenant people living in the midst of a dominant culture that holds entirely different views from us, embraces entirely different values, and are none too friendly to aliens and outsiders who insist on these strange beliefs and methods. That is where Esther, Mordecai, and all of their Jewish brothers and sisters found themselves, and to a degree that is where we find ourselves. And, of course, I think secondary to the Purim uh, point, the, the origin story of Purim, is that the point of Esther tends to point us toward the idea that you can, without going back to the promised land, you can, while living in exile, you can, even in Persia, even in the citadel of Susa, bring transformation, the transformation of the nations, the changing of the earth, the redemption that God has promised in diaspora, in exile. In Jeremiah 29, the prophet says, Seek the welfare of the city where I send you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is essentially what Esther and Mordecai do. And in obeying this commandment, they wind up being used of God to save his people. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open a book that many of us have read many times and often scratched our heads and said, I wonder what this has to do with being a Christian, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your truth contained in these pages. 
We pray that we would not be snowed by, amazed by, marvel at the world's riches, the ostentatious, conspicuous consumption all around us, Lord, that we would not swipe through Instagram and be filled with avarice and coveting, but, Lord, that we would instead hold you up, that we would recognize we live in a world where the, the media and the culture tend to rule with the kind of decree that cannot be overridden just like Persia was run. But Lord, we know that we serve a different sovereign, a God who is maker of heaven and earth, a God who works even what looks like coincidences, even what looks like wicked plans out for good by his sovereign will. Lord, we pray that this week, as we, as we think on these things, and as I pray, many here would open the book of Esther and read it beginning to end and become reacquainted with it. We pray that we would find ourselves wanting to be used of you, that we would remind ourselves we're not the hero. That, that position has been taken. We're not who it's all about. But if at such a time as this you can use us, whether in big ways or small, Lord, we pray we would be ready. We pray as we study this book, you would give us a heart that says, here am I, send me. In any moment that, Lord, we would be ready to, with a word about Christ, with an act of kindness or forgiveness, testify to the hope that we have within us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.